Yeah, I wonder how Joseph's brothers felt when Joseph finally reveals to them in chapter 45 who he is. That spoilt, arrogant little brother who was a dobber, a dreamer, a daddy's boy, the young man that they'd sold to foreign slave traders is now, chapter 45, the most powerful man in all of Egypt apart from Pharaoh himself. How could that possibly be? Genesis 41 through to 45, it covers the, the rise of Joseph from slave in prison to king of Egypt. God uses Joseph to save his people. Joseph is a part of God's big plan of salvation. Before we kind of get lost in the detail, though, I suppose we should remember the broader context. We're in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Uh, And we should recall that Genesis chapter 1 to 11, it tells the story of, of God creating the world and the fall of humankind. What God made was very good, but instead of trusting God's good word, humanity fell. And the picture that Genesis 3 to 11 particularly paints is one of carnage, the the spread of sin, the brokenness of of relationships, uh, the, the mess of the world that we know today. But from Genesis 12 to 50, the the story, it zooms in on this one family. In Genesis 12, God gave those promises to that man, Abraham, the promise of people and land and, and blessing, the promise that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. And it goes Abraham and then his son Isaac and then his son Jacob, whose name's changed to Israel. And he has those 12 boys who become the 12 tribes of of Israel, but as we look at this messed up family in Genesis, we wonder how can God possibly keep his promise? How can he possibly work his plan of salvation through these people? Well, we last left Joseph in that Egyptian prison. He was forgotten by Pharaoh's wine taster, whose dream he'd, he'd just interpreted. But Joseph won't be forgotten by God. Two long years later in Genesis 41, Pharaoh has those two really vivid and disturbing dreams. The first one, Bindi showed it well, the anorexic cows gobbling up the fat ones. The second dream, dried up half-dead plants eating healthy ones. It's bizarre. What could it all mean? Well, Pharaoh summons his wise men and the magicians, and he demands, well, interpret my dreams. That was their job. That was their bread and butter. But they couldn't. And it's only at this moment that the the wine taster remembers, oh, that's right, Joseph. And he tells Pharaoh, And Pharaoh summons Joseph, and after a quick tidy up, Joseph is standing before the most powerful person there is. 
And in verse 15, Pharaoh says this to Joseph, I had a dream and no one could interpret it. But I've heard that it's said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. This is obviously Joseph's get out of jail card, isn't it? But he also has the chance here to, to, to not just get out of jail, but to get in the good books of Pharaoh. But notice in verse 16, he refuses to take any credit for interpreting the dreams. Verse 16, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. This is your opportunity, Joe. Pharaoh, you've come to the right place. You, you know, you're right. I've got a history in this sort of thing. I, I'm the one who can help you. No. No, it seems that that stuck-up young Joseph has finally learnt something, and in humility, he points away from himself to God. Notice... Just as Joseph is about to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, he again resists the temptation to take any credit for himself. In verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same, says Joseph. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Notice here too that the power and magnificence and wisdom of the great Egyptian empire is being compared with the living God. The Egyptian wise men cannot interpret the dreams. Only God can. Pharaoh can't control the future, drought or rain. Only God can. Egypt doesn't rule the world. Only God does. You see chapter 41, verse 32, Joseph says, the reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. What's going on here? Well, all the references that Joseph makes to God, they tell us this, this story, it's much bigger than a, than a rags-to-riches tale from prison to, to palace. It's not really about that at all. The references to God tell us that this is God's story. The kingdom of God is breaking in to the Egyptian empire, and it is amazing. It's not as though God's got a lot to work with here, is it? Humanly speaking, compared to the, the great resources of the mighty Egyptian empire, what's God using? Joseph, a nobody foreign slave. And as we keep reading the, 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 the Bible, it's a pattern that we see over and over again, isn't it? As God works out his salvation throughout human history, uh, Exodus, God saves the Israelites, his people of old, from slavery to the Egyptian empire. Later, God saves the Israelites, his people of old, from complete annihilation by the Babylonian empire. When Jesus is born... God's people are occupied by powerful Rome. 
Mighty Rome ruled the world. Caesar, the king of of the universe, Jesus enters human history and, and, and steps into the Roman Empire to bring about what? To bring about God's kingdom. And you wonder, how's he going to do it, given the awesome power of Rome? But Jesus hasn't simply come to deal with mighty Rome. King Jesus overthrows much bigger powers than Rome, powers like sin and Satan and death. Jesus defeats the the dark forces of sin and Satan and death, not by flexing his muscles, asserting his power like a, a powerful nation might, but by becoming a humble servant and dying a criminal's death. God's kingdom isn't like the arrogant empires of the world who strut around flexing their muscles that everyone might be afraid but God's kingdom is like what what do we read in in the gospels God's kingdom is like a mustard seed which starts out small and and modest and hardly visible but grows until it outstrips and outlasts all its rivals God's kingdom comes not by force, but by the news of Jesus, a message of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. Mighty Egypt can't stand in the way of God's kingdom here in Genesis 41, even if it's just Joseph that God chooses to use. Anyway, uh, given the failure of Pharaoh's wise men to interpret his dreams, well, Joseph just happens to find himself second in charge of Egypt. You see this in chapter 41, verse 39 to 40. Joseph says, uh, Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, There is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace. It's interesting, isn't it? You read this story, whatever situation Joseph finds himself, he inevitably ends up in charge, whether as a slave or as a prisoner or in Pharaoh's palace. Genesis 41 says Joseph is in charge over all of Egypt two more times. Pharaoh places the signet ring on his finger. He puts a gold chain around his neck. He dresses him in fine robes. And the story has come full circle. The boy with the technicolour coat now wears royal robes. The dream is still alive. And you notice, uh, if you keep reading, as the, the food shortage kicks in, it finally reaches Joseph's family back in Canaan. And Jacob, the, the, you know, the dad, he sends 10 of his older sons to go to Egypt to buy food. And while there's this major food crisis and the dark shadow 
of that. The, the darker shadow that looms over Jacob and his family in this story, it's not the food crisis, but it's what happened in the past with Joseph. For Jacob, the loss of Joseph means that he is paralysed by past grief. You see this? Uh, When Jacob sends his sons off to Egypt to to buy food, he refuses to send who? The, The youngest boy, Benjamin. Why? Chapter 42, verse 4 says this. He was afraid that harm might come to him. But when Jacob's sons come back from Egypt, insisting that they take Benjamin back with them, there's no way Jacob is going to let that happen. Chapter 42, verse 38 says, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in sorrow. It's only when the food crisis worsens in chapter 43 that that Jacob finally allows his sons uh, to take Benjamin with them to Egypt. The loss of Joseph in the past means Jacob is paralysed by grief in the present. And, and that can just be so true of our lives, can't it? A past grief, whether a death, an accident, a broken relationship, sexual abuse, all kinds of, of different things can paralyse us in the present. That's Jacob. Joseph's brothers, their past guilt, they're bound by their past guilt because of what they did to Joseph. When Joseph's brothers first meet him in Genesis chapter 42, totally unaware of who he is, Joseph accuses them of dishonesty. Chapter 42, verse 14, he accuses them of being spies. And to test their honesty, Joseph holds one of them in prison while the rest of them go home to bring back their youngest brother, Benjamin. It seems that Joseph's accusations bring on an an, an attack of the guilts for them. You see chapter 42, verse 21? We read, they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. Reuben, he says in verse 22 of that chapter, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? Now we must give an accounting for his blood. Their past has come back to haunt them. It's interesting that when they return to Jacob, they recount to Jacob, you know, we've met this powerful ruler, he's not very nice. Uh, they, they recount to Jacob what they said about jo- Joseph's accusations that they were spies in verse 31 and 32. But we said to him, we're honest. We're honest men. 
We're not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of, of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Almost 20 years after selling Joseph into slavery, they're still covering it up. They can't even be totally honest with with someone who's apparently a, a complete stranger, and they still can't tell Jacob what really happened with Joseph. They stick to their story. They're bound by their past guilt. It just may be that there's something in your past that you feel guilty about too, something that you're ashamed of, something you wouldn't dare tell anyone else. Are you someone who is bound today like Joseph's brothers by past guilt? If Jacob is bound by past grief, and Joseph's brothers by past guilt, Joseph is bound by past hurts. Joseph is often portrayed as the good guy. Uh, But it's interesting how he doesn't immediately just reveal himself to his brothers. Genesis 42 verse 9 says that after Joseph, he recognises his brothers... He remembered his dreams about them and then he accuses them of being spies. Joseph actually picks a fight with his brothers. When he remembers the the, the dream, does he suddenly also remember what they did to him? It'd be hard to forget that, wouldn't it? While Joseph may be testing to see how honest they are, there also seems to be a couple of other things going on. First, Joseph is especially interested in his little brother, Benjamin. Benjamin, you may know, is his only full brother. And he wants to be sure they haven't treated Benjamin as they did him. Joseph is bound by past hurt. Second, Joseph also seems to be just messing with their minds. On one hand, he holds one of them in prison. He accuses them of spying and dishonesty. He even frames them and accuses them of stealing from him. And on the other hand, he throws a dinner party for them when they return to Egypt. And he's generous with, his, with money and food supplies. In relating with his brothers, Joseph breaks down a couple of times. In chapter 42, that's where he first breaks down. Uh, Verse 24, after hearing his brothers talking uh, about their guilt they're feeling in how they treated him. And he breaks down again in chapter 43, verse 30, when he first meets his little brother Benjamin. Joseph's emotions are... Are really close to the surface. He, he, he must have mixed emotions. And while he still seems angry at his brothers for past hurts, he's also glad to see them again, especially Benjamin. It would be almost impossible for Joseph 
to not be hanging on to past hurts, hey? Over the years, the the hurts, they can build up. Holding on to past hurts can lead us to to putting up walls in relationships, to to keeping our distance in relationships, or, or hurting back when we feel threatened in relationships. I wonder if it was something like that for Joseph. By the end of Genesis chapter 44... We might ask, will Jacob remain paralysed by grief? <laughs> will Joseph's brothers be bound by past guilt? We've got to keep the cover story. Will Joseph hang on to past hurts? Is their dream of God's salvation still alive so that they're no longer bound by the past? Well, the dream is still alive. Joseph is in charge. His brothers also bow down to him just like they did in the dream. And in Genesis chapter 45, we finally see that that whatever happened in the past will not stop God's grand plan of salvation. Before Genesis 45, God's people seemed bound by the past. But in Chapter 45, there's this great reversal. The reversal begins with the news that Joseph is alive, verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And Joseph goes on to say to his brothers, verses 5 to 7, look, don't beat yourselves up about what you did in the past. Why? Because God had sent him to Egypt to save them. Three times Joseph says that God sent him to Egypt to save lives. God's salvation brings a great reversal for God's people. No longer is Jacob paralysed by past grief. He's free to love Joseph. No longer are Joseph's brothers bound by past guilt. They're forgiven No longer will Joseph hang on to past hurts. He's free to show grace. The good news that Joseph is alive and God saves is a sneak preview into the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news is that Jesus is alive and God saves. The news of Jesus reverses grief to joy. Christ is risen. The Lord Jesus from death to life. And now we have the resurrection to look forward to. All our tears will be wiped away. And as we say goodbye to that dear brother of ours uh, tomorrow morning, at the funeral service. What a joy. The resurrection is real. The new creation is to come. The gospel reverses guilt to forgiveness. Jesus has died for our sin. You don't need to cover it up. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel reverses hurt to grace. We've been saved by grace. We're free to love even our enemies. As God's people, we no longer need to hang on to grudges. It's amazing, really, what God can do with a pretty broken and messy bunch of people, isn't it? In this story, it's not really about Joseph at all, but the almighty, loving God of the Bible who saves. Let's pray. Our loving Father, as we get tangled up in the mess of Genesis 12 to 50, as we're confronted by the sin and the anxiety, we thank you that it does not stop you from keeping your promises and working your grand plan of salvation. Lord God, we thank you that you are in charge and that you save. Lord, we thank you for the way we see this best in Jesus and for the way that the news of our King risen and ascended to your right hand transforms that we no longer need to hang on to the past hurts or keep trying to cover up our sin and that you free us to love even our enemies. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, shape us and transform us But as we get tangled up in the the mess and the grief of this life at times, remind us that we're secure in you and we want to praise you that you are God and there is no other. Amen.